What are we getting into today? Well, what's the top of the news? What's the biggest thing in the news? That's what we're getting into. Dr. Levine, do you believe that minors are capable of making such a life-changing decision as changing one's sex? Well, Senator, thank you for your interest in this question. Um, transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field um, with robust research and uh, standards of care that have been developed. And if I am fortunate enough to be confirmed as the Assistant Secretary of Health, I will look forward to working with you and your office and coming to your office and discussing the particulars of the standards of care for transgender yeah. medicine. Welcome to the Lecture Fan Podcast. My name is Lecture Fan. I'm a Twitch streamer. I do conservative politics on Twitch. I'm a commercial litigation attorney. I've traveled the world. I believe in the U.S. Constitution. I do podcasts uh, with my Monday, Tuesday, Thursday streams. Hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Check me out on Twitch, twitch.tv slash lctrfan, and on all other social media platforms as Lecture Fan. Thank you guys so much. Enjoy. I'm alarmed that you won't say with certainty that minors should not have the ability to make the decision to take hormones that will affect them for the rest of their life. Will you make a more firm decision on whether or not minors should be involved in these decisions? Senator, uh, transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field, uh, and if confirmed to the position of Assistant Secretary of Health, I would certainly be pleased to come to your office and talk with you and your staff Wow, it's literally word for word the exact same thing said to the first question. It's just a memorized line, the same thing over and over again. Hey, do you think do you think children should be amputating their genitalia? Ah, uh, Mr. Senator, uh, yeah, this is a very complex and nuanced topic. I'd be happy to talk to you about it. We're talking about it right now. You're testifying before the Senate. We're about to vote on whether to confirm you. Answer the freaking question. Wow. Wow. It's not a hard question. It's not a hard question. And it's obviously just a robotic line. This is unbelievable. The question is a very specific one. Should minors be making these momentous decisions for most of the history of... It's insane. This person won't even answer the question. Should minors be making lifelong, permanent, life-altering genital mutilation medical decisions? We won't. We won't let a minor get a ear pierced. We won't let a get let a minor get an ear pierced. But we're gonna let them change their sex. We're gonna let them make permanent genital mutilation. Like this is insanity. This is truly insane. We should be outraged that someone's talking to a three-year-old about changing their sex. I, I am outraged. I am outraged at that. That is outrageous. You can't thank you so much, Senator Paul. Senator Levine, thank you for... I'm like, I, I, I'm honestly shocked. I'm honestly stunned. I didn't know that this stuff has gotten this extreme. I mean, I know the left has gotten extreme and insane on this transgender stuff. But literally saying that children without their parents' consent should be able to make lifelong, permanent, sex-altering, body-altering medical decisions is honestly insane. I mean, that's even beyond what I thought they... That's even beyond, like, how extreme I thought they had gotten. Wow. I'm actually outraged at that. I, I am actually outraged. And most Americans would be. Holy smokes, that's crazy, man.
That is out of control. I can barely express in words how like messed up that is. Right, that's the thing, Dubjorn. If you do this when they're children, you can't reverse it later on. And so that's why Rand Paul quoted or quoted from somebody who did this and they regret it later in life. It's sad, man. It's sad. Cortez tweeted this, quote, this is not okay, never has okay, never will be okay, no matter the administration or party. Is this a failure on the part of this administration? Wow, the, the press is still asking. <laughs> Every single day she's out there having to answer questions about kids in cages. The media is obsessed with the Biden administration putting kids in cages. I'm surprised the media is actually asking it, to be honest with you. I'm kind of surprised to see these reporters not asking questions like, Oh, how wonderful is Joe Biden today? Oh, what what wonderful things. Oh, how many, how many times have you told the truth today? Oh, what wonderful things has Biden done? I mean, that's what I would expect. So I'm actually kind of surprised to see the media every every three days or every single day talking about Biden putting kids in cages at literally the exact same facility, the exact same location, facility, everything that Donald Trump, they were outraged about Donald Trump doing. And and then every single day, the Biden administration is like, look, what do you want us to do? Like there's unaccompanied minors at the border. What do you want us to do? We're trying to re reunite them with their family. And, and, and everybody is like, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what the Trump administration said. <laughs> but our objective is to move them as quickly as we can to families that have been vetted. I love this. I love this. The Biden administration is literally just making the exact same arguments that the Trump administration make made. I mean, this this literally could be the Trump administration up here making these statements about why we have kids in detention facilities. It's like, uh, what do you, what else do you want us to do when they're unaccompanied minors or we catch kids with child traffickers? You want us to just let the kids go with other traffickers, with sex traffickers? I mean, what do you want us to do? This literally, what she's explaining is the exact same thing that the Trump administration tried to explain to these idiots. This is hilarious just to see the, just to see, I wonder if these leftists and liberals are going to finally realize, oh yeah, you know, I guess, you know, Trump wasn't wrong to do that. Oh yeah, I guess Trump and Biden are basically, basically doing the same thing. They're taking kids and trying to reunite them with families. They had that system while Obama was still doing the same exact thing. There's nothing new here and hasn't been for some time. Exactly, Dubjorn, exactly. <laughs> it's literally Obama's, Obama was doing the same thing. Trump was doing the same thing. Biden was doing the same thing. Now, there's a little bit of difference because the Trump administration was was actually trying to do a better job of actually enforcing our immigration laws, which is a good thing, which actually discourages child sex trafficking and, and gets rid of the incentive for coyotes and human traffickers to try to bring kids across the border. So the Trump administration was, was actually trying to do a better job of actually enforcing laws. But in terms of what we're supposed to do, what the U.S. government does with unaccompanied minors and children, that hasn't changed. There was literally a, there was literally like a, a litigation settlement in like 2008 or 2009 that literally set, set out exactly how the government has to deal with children that are at the border, unaccompanied children at the border. It's been the same this entire time.
that's what's so frustrating about the way that the left was freaking out about Trump. The $15 an hour minimum wage promise cannot go into the COVID relief package. There will be more news on this, no doubt. <laughs> so, okay, so now, <laughs> oh my gosh, Biden, no $2,000 checks, no $15 minimum wage, ongoing deportations, kids in cages, bombing, bombing the Middle East. Did you guys hear about that? Did you guys hear about that? Joe Biden literally started bombing the Middle East today. So let's see. This is what we have from Joe Biden. No $2,000 checks, no $15 minimum wage, ongoing deportation, kids in cages, bombing the Middle East. What else did you de de Democrats and leftists want? What a joke, dude. Literally everything that the Democrats want is not happening. <laughs> oh, you got to love it. Oh my gosh, you got to love it. Biden orders U.S. airstrikes in Syria targeting Iran-backed militia. Wow. No $15 minimum wage. No $2,000 checks. No halt on deportation. Kids in cages. Starting wars in the Middle East. Is this what Democrats wanted? Is this literally what Democrats wanted? Did, Demo did Democrats want more bombing of the Middle East? More wars in the Middle East? Airstrike follows deadly rocket attacks against U.S. forces in Iraq earlier this month. Remember when leftists were mad because Trump took out Qasem Soleimani? Right. Go nuts. Right. Yeah. Everybody should go ask Dylan Burns. Hey, Dylan Burns, are you attacking Biden right now for bombing, uh, bo launching missile attacks in Iraq right now or Syria? Or are all the Democrats and leftists and liberals, are they all attacking Biden right now for launching military strikes? All right, folks. We're starting a new um we're starting a new thing on the lecture fan stream where we're going to be going through the Federalist papers. So, this is the first time. Welcome everybody to the very first ever um Federalist papers live stream. We're going to be going through over the next over the next however many couple of years or whatever. We are going to be every Thursday night, every Thursday night, we're going to do some, some of the Federalist Papers. And I don't know if we'll do it. Maybe we'll do a half hour or an hour. Um, but we are going to be going through the Federalist Papers every Thursday night. Glad you guys are all here. Welcome. So we'll just be reading through them and, and talking about them and, and learning and commenting and analyzing and the Federalist, commonly referred to as the Federalist Papers, is a series of 85 essays written by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison between October 1787 and May 1788. The essays were published anonymously under the pen name Publius in various New York State newspapers of the time. The Federalist Papers were written and published to urge New Yorkers to ratify the U.S. Constitution, which was drafted in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. In lobbying for adoption of the Constitution over the existing Articles of Confederation, the essays explain particular provisions of the Constitution in detail. For this reason, and because Hamilton and Madison were each members of the Constitutional Convention, the Federalist Papers are often used today to help interpret the intentions of those drafting the Constitution. The Federalist Papers were published primarily in two New York State newspapers, the New York Packet and the Independent Journal.
They were reprinted in other newspapers in New York State and in several cities in other states. Wow. Wow, 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 folks. Check it out. 85 essays by the American heroes, the founding fathers. All right. Federalist number one. General introduction for the Independent Journal, Alexander Hamilton. People of the state of New York, after an unequivocal experience of the inefficiency of the subsisting federal government, you are called upon to deliberate on a new constitution for the United States of America. The subject speaks its own importance, comprehending its, in its consequences nothing less than the existence of the Union, the safety and welfare of the parts of which it is composed, the fate of an empire in many respects the most interesting in the world. Whoa, that's interesting. The fate of an empire in many respects the most interesting in the world. Is he referring to the 13 colonies as the fate of an empire? Or is he talking about the British Empire? The most interesting in the world. The fate of an empire in many respects the most interesting in the world. Huh. It has been frequently remarked that it seems to have been reserved to the people of this country by their conduct and example to decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to bend for their political constitutions on accident and force. Wow. So that's, that's pointing out like, this is literally pointing out that like, wow, the United States, the United States, the United States is the one country that will decide forever a question that mankind has asked for thousands of years, which is whether societies of men are capable of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or are we forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force? In other words, the United States is an experiment. We're in, this is an experiment to see, can, can people really govern themselves? Can we really have a conf constitution that's based on people's choice? Or is it going to be like it always has been, accident in force? If there be any truth in the remark, the crisis at which we are arrived may be with, or may with propriety, be regarded as the era in which that decision is to be made. And a wrong election of the part we shall act may, in this view, deserve to be considered as the general misfortune of mankind. Wow. Wow. Wow, so literally saying that like, look, this is the moment, this is the moment in all of human history, in all of human history, this right now is the moment to decide whether we can have good government by reflection and choice, or is it going to be the general misfortune of mankind that we choose not to? Wow, this is already a very powerful, very powerful paper. This idea will add the inducements. This idea will add the inducements of philanthropy to those of patriotism. To heighten the solicitude which all considerate and good men must feel for the event. Alright, we're going to have to look up solicitude. Solicitude. Care or concern for someone or something. Solicitude. Solicitude. Care or concern for someone or something. This, this idea will add the inducements of philanthropy to those of patriotism to heighten the solicitude which all considerate and good men must feel for the event. 
Happy will it be if our choice should be directed by a judicious estimate of our true interests. Unperplexed and unbiased by considerations not connected with the public good. Okay, so that's basically saying... As far as I can tell, he's basically saying, look, if you're patriotic, if you believe in philanthropy and helping people, uh, if you have concerns that all considerate and good men must feel, um, if we can be directed by a judicious estimate of our true interests and not ideas not connected with the public good, basically saying this is all just to decide if we can have good government, if we can actually result in what's good for the public. But this is a thing more ardently to be wished than seriously to be expected. The plan offered to our deliberations affects too many particular interests, innovates upon too many local institutions, not to involve in its discussion a variety of objects foreign to its merits, and of views, passions, and prejudice literal, little favorable to the discovery of truth. Interesting. So there he's basically saying um, the Constitution... The Constitution is such a big deal, is so powerful, is going to have such a big impact that we're not going to just be talking. We're not going to just be talking about, you know, the merits of the Constitution, but we're going to be talking about passions and prejudices and important things that have nothing to do with the merits of the Constitution because this Constitution is set to impact everything about life, all of life, everything that happens in life. I can already tell, I can already tell that by reading, reading through these Federalist Papers is going to make me so sad. It's going to make me so sad because we're going to realize just how genius and how smart these founding fathers were and how amazing the Constitution is. And we're going to realize how far, how far have we strayed. Honestly, now that I've started reading these, now that I've started reading the Federalist Papers, I'm just embarrassed that I haven't actually read through all of them before. And I just want to read all of them right now. Just read the whole thing. You know, isn't that a weird feeling? Like, wow, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I just, uh, we're, we're like five paragraphs into the Federalist number one. And I'm just like, well, this is so good. How have I not read all of this before? I never want to stop. I want to read all of it. It is not, however, my design to dwell upon observations of this nature. I am well aware that it would be disingenuous to resolve indiscriminately the opposition of any set of men, merely because their situations might subject them to suspicion into interested or ambitious views. Basically saying, I'm not going to do this. I'm not, if, if you disagree with the Constitution, I'm not going to assume you're doing it, you know, just because you want your own power. You know, we'll, we'll discuss the actual, what, what, what you're actually saying. Which is ba basically, basically, this is Alexander Hamilton saying, hey, look, if you disagree with the Constitution, I'm not going to make personal attacks on you. You know, I'm not going to make ad homs. It's not going to be just a bunch of ad homs at you and say your ideas suck and you're doing it because you want your own power or you're a racist, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, Alexander Hamilton is saying, hey, no, if you actually disagree with the Constitution, you know, we won't just, we just won't, you know, ignore you. We'll address you on the merits and on the actual reality of what you're trying to say so i've read a lot of the federalist papers because they're they're quoted a lot in supreme court cases because the supreme court the with the supreme court when interpreting the constitution and trying to figure out what the constitution means or how it applies to certain situations the supreme court will oftentimes look to the federalist papers and so 
in law school you read cases you know in law school you read cases you that's pretty much all you read you read other stuff but it's mostly just reading cases and a lot of the supreme court cases uh have quotations and citations of the federalist papers so you know i know a lot about it and and frankly you know i've read um i've read a lot of books on the constitution like, like i've read uh akil amar's um, america's constitution which is an incredible and incredible book you know, and I got, I actually got the, I got the highest grade in my class in constitutional law, which is called booking it. If you get the highest grade in your class in law school, you, you get a book award. So I literally got the book award for con law. Um, but that's cause I was super interested in the constitution and I had read a bunch of books on my own about the constitution. Also interested or ambitious views. Okay. Candor will oblige us to admit that even such men may be actuated by upright intentions. Wow, so look at this. Alexander Hamilton literally saying, I'm going to be charitable. I'm going to be charitable for your views. If you if you attack the Constitution, I won't attack you for having personal opinions. I'll be charitable. You might have upright intentions. And it cannot be doubted that much of the opposition which has made its appearance or may hereafter make its appearance will spring from sources blameless at least, if not respectable. The honest heirs of minds led astray by preconceived jealousies and fears. I love that. So, if you disagree with the Constitution, if you disagree with the Constitution, you've made an honest heir of mind led astray by preconceived jealousies and fears. So numerous indeed and so powerful are the causes which serve to give a false bias to the judgment that we, upon many occasions, see wise and good men on the wrong as well as on the right side of questions of the first magnitude to society. Oh, okay. This circumstance, if duly attended to, would furnish a lesson of moderation to those who are ever so much persuaded of their being in the right in any controversy. Wow. These Twitch politics, these Twitch political commentators could sure do, could, could sure learn a lot from taking the mindset that Alexander Hamilton is taking in Federalist Number 1. And a further reason for caution in this respect might be drawn from the reflection that we are not always sure that those who advocate the truth are influenced by purer principles than their antagonists. Ambition, avarice, personal animosity, party opposition, and many other motives not more laudable than these are apt to operate as well upon those who support as those who oppose the right side of a question. Were there not even these inducements to moderation, nothing could be more ill-judged than that intolerant spirit which has at, at all times characterized political parties <laughs> wow going in hard against political parties for in politics as in religion it is equally absurd to aim at making proselytes by fire and sword heresies in either can rarely be cured by persecution wow so wise this is incredible this is honestly so apropos for today the way Alexander Hamilton is explaining here that like to be charitable to people to, uh, you know, don't try to like, don't attack people for personal reasons. You know, let's, let's focus on the merits and on the substance. And wow, this is just so like high minded and, you know, charitable and just awesome. Just such a good way. Like, especially when you're going to argue about something like the constitution and whether to support it or not, because arguing on that, it could easily, 
I guess what Al what Alexander yeah timeless wisdom exactly Papa Wolf this is timeless wisdom that's what he's basically saying yeah don't fight over politics and don't fight over religion because I'm sure that Alexander Hamilton knew that this debate that they were having the ratification debates on the Constitution could very easily have devolved into just personal attacks so he's literally making a call and a plea to not do personal attacks which is why it's like wow this is so on point lots of people today would be well served to read this and consider this and yet however just these sentiments will be allowed to be we have already sufficient indications that it will happen in this as in all former cases of great national discussion <laughs> wow alexander hamilton basically saying yeah we already know this is going to happen always does always will a torrent of angry and malignant passions will be let loose. He could be literally talking about a Twitch politics panel. <laughs> to judge from the conduct of the opposite parties, we shall be led to conclude that they will mutually hope to evince the justness of their opinions. And yet, however, just these sentiments will be allowed to be. We have already sufficient indication that it will happen in this as in all former cases of great national discussion a torrent of angry and malignant passions will be let loose to judge from the conduct of the opposite parties we shall be led to conclude that they will mutually hope to evince the justice of their opinions and to increase the number of their converts by the loudness of their declamations and the bitterness of their invectives that's literally exactly what the twitch leftists do they're trying to increase the number of their converts by the loudness of their declamations and the bitterness of their invectives. An enlightened zeal for the energy and efficiency of government will be stigmatized as the offspring of a temper fond of despotic power and hostile to the principles of liberty. Interesting. So he's saying, yeah, people, people that are in favor of an efficient and energetic government are going to be stigmatized as basically supporting despots. An over-scrupulous jealousy of danger to the rights of the people, which is more commonly the fault of the head than of the heart, will be represented as mere pretense and artifice, the stale bait for popularity at the expense of the public good. It will be forgotten on the one hand that jealousy is the usual concomitant of love and that the noble enthusiasm of liberty is apt to be infected with the spirit of narrow and illiberal distrust. On the other hand, it will be equally forgotten that the vigor of government is essential to the security of liberty, that in the contemplation of a sound and well-informed judgment, their interest can never be separated, and that a dangerous ambition more often lurks behind the specious mask of zeal for the rights of the people than under the forbidden appearance of zeal for the firmness and efficiency of government. Interesting. It's almost like he's saying... Dangerous and dangerous dangerousness is almost usually behind um, a zeal for the rights of the people rather than people who have a zeal for the firmness and efficiency of government. Huh. That actually kind of goes contrary to what a lot of conservatives believe, you know, because we're so uh, modern day conservatives are so, 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 so focused on the rights of the people that we're not as focused on the firmness and efficiency of government. You know, that's a really strong, I think that's a really, this, this is something that I think Republicans and conservatives could, could learn from. Maybe, maybe instead of obsessing so much about the rights of the people, we should be more obsessing about efficiency of government and making sure there's good government.
Now, I think you got to pay attention to both. But that's interesting that Alexander Hamilton is saying that dangerous ambition more often lurks behind the specious mask of zeal for the rights of the people than under the forbidden appearance of zeal for the firmness and efficiency of government. History will teach us that the former has been found a much more certain road to the introduction of despotism than the latter, and that of those men who have overturned the liberties of republics, the greatest number have begun their career by paying an obsequious court to the people, commencing demagogues and ending tyrants. Wow, interesting. So a couple of points on that. I think number one, it's interesting that he's already referencing what history teaches us. You know, and we know that um, we know that the founding fathers, they did a, a, a very in-depth study of history in order to figure out how how we come up with, um, you know, a good government. And so that's interesting that Alexander Hamilton is saying, if you look at history, you know, the the actually the way that you get to despotism is a lot of times by people saying or, or a person saying, I'm here to preserve the rights of the people. I'm here to write, write, write the people and I'm going to end the tyrants. But it's actually commencing a demagogue versus somebody who's rising up and saying, hey, I want a really good government. I want an efficient government. I want a government that you know, does this, does that, then does it well and, and protects the rights of the people. This is really interesting. I, I don't, I mean, he's basically, I mean, this is contrary to modern conservatives because modern conservatives um, are oftentimes more talking about the people and individual rights and preserving the people versus talking about how do we make our government efficient and how do we have a good government? It is true. It is true. It seems true that like a lot of times people that, you know, people that become dictators, they often start out before they're dictators or on their way to becoming a dictator. They always talk about, I'm just wanting to help the people. I'm just wanting to help the little man. I mean, that's how communists do it. Communists become despots and tyrants and dictators by saying, oh, we're just wanting to help the people. We just want to help the people. In the course of the preceding observations, I have had an eye, my fellow citizens, to putting you upon your guard against all attempts from whatever quarter to influence your decision in a matter of the utmost moment to your welfare by any impressions other than those which may result from the evidence of truth. You will, no doubt, at the same time, have collected from the general scope of them that they proceed from a source not unfriendly to the new constitution. Yes, my countrymen, I own to you that, after having given it an attentive consideration, I am clearly of opinion it is your interest to adopt it. I am convinced that this is the safest course for your liberty, your dignity, and your happiness. I affect not reserves which I do not feel. I will not amuse you with an appearance of deliberation when I have decided. I frankly acknowledge to you my convictions. I will freely lay before you the reasons on which they are founded. The consciousness of good intentions disdains ambiguity. I shall not, however, multiply professions on this head. My motives must remain in the depository of my own breast. My arguments will be open to all and may be judged of by all. They shall at last be offered in a spirit which, shall, which will not disgrace the cause of truth. You know, so it's interesting. Like, Federalist number one is really just kind of setting the stage or setting the table or 
you know, really, really starting out, really starting out here with Federalist number one by just kind of laying the groundwork for, hey, we're about to have a discussion. We're about to have a debate. You know, we need to we need to have this debate in a in a fair way. We want to talk about the merits. We don't want to attack each other. We don't want to, you know, let things overcome us. And and in and, and then he and then he basically comes out and just says, yeah. And by the way, I do support the Constitution. And I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with you. I do support the Constitution. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll tell you why. And everybody can and, and, and you, you can all take take a look at my reasons why I support the Constitution. And, you know, and people can then argue against it. I propose in a series of papers to discuss the following interesting particulars. The utility of the union to your political prosperity, the insufficiency of the present confederation to preserve that union, the necessity of a government at least equally energetic with the one proposed to the attainment of this object. That's interesting. That's interesting that he talks about an energetic government, you know? I wonder what is that what does that really mean? What does it mean to have an energetic government? Energetic, what does that mean? An energetic government. I think it means a government that, you know, is not like your your bureaucracies where it's they don't want to do anything. They're lazy. It's lazy. It's a bureaucracy. It won't get stuff done. No, an energetic government is one that is responsive and doing things and proactive. And it's not just some like massive bureaucracy. Yeah, I think, yeah, Tally Man. Yeah, responsive, I think proactive you know willing to work uh, you know uh it's a it's an energetic government it's not one that's just like there just to you know be in power it's not like the you know the monarchs where they don't do anything to help people they just sit there and they enjoy their wealth and they enjoy their i think that's that's interesting that we you know i think our i think our government is is becoming in a lot of ways we've lost the energetic government our government is no more no more energetic or no longer energetic to the attainment of this object, the conformity of the proposed constitution to the true principles of Republican government, its analogy to your own state constitution. Interesting. So Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 1 re met, references a Republican government. Doesn't say anything about democracy. Do you, do you guys remember hearing the word democracy or a democratic government so far in, in this Federalist Number 1? Because I don't. Federalist number one doesn't say anything about a democratic government or democracy. It talks about the true principles of Republican government. It's analogy to your own state constitution. And lastly, the additional security, which its adoption will afford to the preservation of that species of government to Liberty and the property. In the progress of this discussion, I shall endeavor to give a satisfactory answer to all the objections, which shall have made their appearance that they, that may seem to have any claim to your attention. It may perhaps be thought superfluous to offer arguments to prove the utility of the union, a point, no doubt, deeply engraved on the hearts of the great body of the people in every state, and one which it may be imagined has no adversaries. But the fact is that we already hear it whispered in the private circles of those who oppose the new constitution that the 13 states are of too great extent for any general system, and that we must of necessity resort to separate confederacies of distinct portions of the whole. This doctrine will, in all probability, be gradually propagated till it has votaries enough to countenance an open avowal of it. For nothing can be more evident 
to those who are able to take an enlarged view of the subject than the alternative of an adoption of the new constitution or a dismemberment of the union. It will therefore be of use to begin by examining the advantages of that union, the certain evils and the probable dangers to which every state will be exposed from its dissolution. This shall accordingly constitute the subject of my next address. Wow, so he's basically saying it's like, look, everybody, I mean, most most people are going to support the union. We just we just won this revolutionary war. Most people are going to be like, yeah, we need a we need a, you know, we need a government. We need a country. We just won the revolutionary war. But he's basically saying like, no, no, hold on. There's already a lot of people out there talking about, no, we don't want a a, a general government. We just want to have each individual state have be be the only governments. So he's going to He's, then he, he sets the stable for Federalist number two. Um, this shall accordingly constitute the subject of my next address, Publius. There it is, folks. We finished Federalist number one. Finished Federalist paper number one, February 25th, 2021. There it is, folks. We did it. We got all the way through Federalist 2020, 21, number one. It was... I tried to give most of my thoughts throughout it. Um, and so I don't really have like any closing thoughts on Federalist number one, because I basically said kind of all my thoughts as we were going through it, but super awesome intro and get, get us going. And, you know, a very, very wise way of, of, you know, setting the table of, of how we're going to discuss and how we're going to debate and how we should debate. And what are the, what are we going to talk about? And, how are we going to do it and how can we do it in a way that's good and blah, 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 blah. So really good. We are not safer at home. There we go. The number one, the number one article. Wow. While making only a limited impact on COVID-19, lockdowns are taking a severe toll on physical and mental health. We are not safer at home. Oh, this is going to be so good. This is so true, dude. This is like, I can't believe people actually think locking you people inside their homes was a good idea. Unbelievable, dude. It's so bad. It's so bad for people. At the start of the pandemic last year, LA Mayor Eric Garcetti chose safer at home as the motto for his lockdown policies. If the past year has shown us anything, it's how misguided that notion is. We're not safer at home. Lockdowns have created not just economic devastation for America's small businesses, restaurants, museums, and zoos. They have also taken a significant toll on the mental and physical health of everyone from small children to the elderly, while doing very little to contain the virus itself. Very, very little to contain the virus itself. The only thing that they do is flatten the curve, which does not reduce the overall number of cases. It just spreads them out over a longer period of time. And again, epidemiology 101, epidemiology 101, you can flatten the curve for purposes of not allowing your hospitals to get overwhelmed. And that can be a good thing because you don't want people dying because the hospitals are overwhelmed. But guess what? Our hospitals were never overwhelmed. And they likely would not have been if we hadn't locked down. And if we were going to do lockdowns, they should have been done in localized areas for no longer than two weeks in one time at a time. 
but this nationwide and statewide ongoing lockdowns for not just two weeks, but months and months and months and months and even a year, I mean, is is absolutely preposterous. That goes against everything, uh, everything epidemiology taught us. To get a sense of this, compare two states that took opposite approaches, New York and Florida. Oh, here we go, dude. This is This is why I love Florida. Florida is such a good thing. I love the Florida example. Florida literally proves that lockdowns do more harm than good. Despite the hysteria about how bad things were in Florida and the Biden administration's recent threat to restrict travel to the state, statistics suggest that you're better off in the Sunshine State. Currently, Florida has 224 people per million in hospitals for corona. New York has 338 per million, or 50% more. In New York, blacks are 2.3 times more likely than whites to die of COVID. In Florida, blacks are equally as likely as whites to die. Governor Cuomo's disastrous policies have resulted in much higher mortality rates in New York's nursing homes than in Florida's. And that's with the fact that Florida has way more elderly people than New York. The pandemic's toll on physical and mental health has also been severe, no doubt related to the economic losses, but caused by the severe isolation people experience under lockdown. At the beginning of the pandemic, Florida entered a brief lockdown phase in the same way New York did. As a result, both states saw a severe decline in the number of cases reported to state child abuse hotlines. Yeah, we've known that from the beginning. We've known that from the beginning. That so not only there not only is there a rise in child abuse because the abusive parents and the child are now home a lot more often together, but none of it's getting reported or investigated or taken care of. In Florida, reports dropped 40% from April 19 to April 20, but by July, they'd begun to climb again. Schools were open in Florida by the end of the school year. Child welfare calls to the hotline jumped from 18,000 in April to 22,000 in July. In the autumn, certain areas of the state saw a jump of as much as 58% in reports of abuse. Florida's schools have been running almost completely in person, meaning the teachers were once again able to see and report severe cases of abuse and neglect. New York experienced a similar decline in abuse reports when the lockdown began. More than 50% decrease from spring 19 to spring 20, but the numbers have been slower to return to normal in the Big Apple since most kids are still not in school regularly. In Long Island, for instance, reports are still down more than 15%. In New York City, they're down more than 20%. The poorest and most vulnerable children are the ones least likely to be attending school in person. Adults are suffering too. A report from the CDC found that suicidal ideation was elevated. Approximately twice as many respondents reported serious consideration of suicide in the previous 30 days than adults in the United States in 2018. Wow, dude, almost double. Or no, it is double. Approximately doubled the number of suicidal thoughts. Wow. I'd never heard that statistic. How come that never made it to the news? It's a CDC report. A CDC reported that suicidal ideation doubled. Because of lockdowns and, and nobody knows about it. Nobody's ever heard about it. While data on the number of people who took their own lives last year are not available yet, at least one strange fact has emerged. According to preliminary medical examiner stats, the number of suicides in Florida actually dropped 13% in 2020 from the previous year. 
and 16% from 18. This might be part of a long-term trend, but even so, it is still striking that the pandemic has not interrupted it. Wow, so actual, actual suicides are down in Florida, huh? But that's because Florida didn't shut down and lock down. Dude, people go crazy. I would go crazy. Most most people like literally lose their minds and go insane. Like actual like clinical insanity by being by being locked in locked alone, locked up. I mean, think about that. So literally like that's the worst punishment in prison is to lock people up. And yet that's what we're doing to the entire country or that's what a lot of places did to the for their entire states. I mean, it's absurd. California's been one of the worst. Dude, and like the UK is so bad too. I saw um I saw some people posting on social media about how like they they can't wait for the gyms to open up and that like the UK UK gyms maybe are going to open in like 6 weeks and they're really excited and they're talking about how how depressed they've been because they can't go to the gym and stuff. And I'm just like, "Whoa, dude. What in the world? What in the world like in Montana, our gyms have been open since May. Literally May of 2020. We are we shut down in Montana. We shut down for like literally like was it 2 weeks or a month? Or is there maybe it was 6 weeks or something. Montana was one of the very first states to reopen. We opened in in May. We shut down in whatever it was, late March or something. Montana opened in May and we've been open since. And like, I can't imagine like how these, I don't, here's, here's what I've been, here's one thing, a big point that I've been wanting to make. Okay. This is, I think this is really important. You know, uh, in a lot of way, in a lot of ways, it's very difficult to tell the difference between states in the United States and between countries. I mean, the federal government is so powerful and, um, so much things are controlled by federal laws and federal regulations and, our culture, our culture is sort of a national culture, almost a global c culture as well. Um, like in a lot of ways, you know, states are not that different from each other. But the way, the way that these, this different, the different ways that states have responded to the pandemic is the most clear or the clearest example and the most, the m most major example of how different states are and how really different life is in different states. I mean, if you compare, you compare a place where the schools are closed and gyms are closed and restaurants are closed and you compare that to a place where all the gyms are open and schools are open and kids are going to school and restaurants are open. You can go out to eat at nice, nice restaurants. Like that is a major, major difference in just quality of life. I don't think there's a better like example of, of how different our states are from each other. You know, and what's funny is so many people left the states that did hard lockdowns to go to places that were free, free states. I honestly, I honestly think it's so different that I think the United States is, is divided between free states and lockdown states. I, I think, I think going forward, States should be should be categorized as either free states or lockdown states. From the spike in drug overdoses to death resulting from a lack of preventative medical care, it's clear that long-term lockdowns are having serious fatal effects on Americans of all ages. 
If states are supposed to be laboratories of democracy, the results of the past year's experiments are in. We are not safer at home. Wow. Great piece. Great, great piece. We are not safer at home. And we're not. And we're not. Failing to pass Biden's relief package would be irresponsible. <laughs> yeah, right. Because printing another $2 trillion and going $2 trillion more into debt would be irresponsible. Wow, dude. Futures are way off still. Wow. Dude, this is insane. The stock market is out of control right now. Al Husseini says, Until the central bank backs up its words with concrete actions, such as tweaking its asset purchases, yields could be keep, keep moving higher. The Fed is already doing tons of QE. Wow, dude, the yield of the 10 the 10 year actually jumped over 1.5 1.5%. That's crazy. Even some bond market veterans have been searching for historical comparisons. I heard about that, Haggis. Yeah. Cuomo's in trouble, man. Cuomo's in big big trouble. The 10 year rose to 1.51% around its highest level in a year, hitting thresholds that investors say have started to weigh on equities and corporate debt. Inflation. For many, rising inflation expectations are the simple reason for the yield ascent. Wow, so people are finally starting to realize that, yeah, we are looking at inflation. What That's what happens when you run trillions and trillions of dollars of deficits year in and year out. Bond market forecasts of consumer prices are suggesting inflation could surpass the central bank's target for a protracted period, and some investors are penciling in at least 3% inflation this year, even if they're less sure if it's such sustained price pressures could last. 3% inflation, huh? The 10-year break-even rate spread, which tracks expectations for inflation among holders of tips, was 2.15%. Pent-up savings among U.S. households forced to stay at their homes and restrain their spending in restaurants, leisures, and travel. Once the pandemic is put to bed, consumers would unleash their savings upon the economy, spurring prices for services higher and leading to the kinds of elevated price pressures that would usually prompt the central bank to raise rates. Let's look at let's look at the coronavirus stats. Wow, look at a. Uh, there's the Montana one. Let's see the U.S. Let's see the U.S. curve. Wow, look at that. Look at the coronavirus case number curve. To me, that looks pretty pretty clear. Pretty clear that coronavirus is on the way out. 